Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Bible Schooled podcast. As we approach Easter Sunday, I know many Christians across the world are observing Lent as part of their spirituality and their devotion to Christ. Uh, You may or may not observe Lent. I know that many of the Christians in the evangelical circles that I am a part of don't really observe Lent, but Whether you do or not, we should all be meditating on the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the best texts that we could meditate on as believers, apart from the gospel accounts themselves as we approach Easter Sunday, is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage of scripture. I read a portion of it at the beginning of the episode This chapter is part of a literary collection in Isaiah, commonly referred to as the Servant Songs. So uh, the Servant Songs, these are going to be Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7, Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9, and Isaiah 52, verse 13, going through the whole of chapter 53. These four passages of scriptures make up the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. These are very rich passages of scriptures that we're going to be discussing today on the podcast. Um, And honestly, we could spend countless hours upon hours discussing it. But for our purposes here on the show, we're just going to look at the broad strokes that the servant songs uses to paint and then take an overview of the visual as it comes together. Or you could put it this way. I like to think of Isaiah's servant songs as a symphony, uh, a symphony performed by an orchestra. So you have the brass section here, uh, you have the winds, you have the percussions, you have the string instruments, each of them playing beautiful music on their own in their respective places. But when you uh, go sit in the audience and you hear it all playing together, you get the fullness of the sound. You hear the symphony as it was designed to be heard. And I think that's a really, really good analogy for the servant songs of Isaiah, because each one of these passages tell us something very important about this servant of the Lord figure that emerges out of these scriptures. And it all kind of crescendos in the last one in Isaiah 53. So that's where we're headed on this episode, but before we get into it, let me say a quick thank you for being here. As always, I greatly appreciate you for tuning in. 
If you want to support the show, there are a few great ways you can do that right now. I know some of you have been asking, how can we support you? How can we keep this thing going? Uh, the first way is to subscribe or follow if you're new. We're on a few platforms, so um, you can find this uh, podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Google, iTunes, all that. The second way is for you iPhone users out there, speaking of iTunes, you can leave a rating or review on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. That would be a huge, huge help in getting the word out about this show. And the third way to help out, speaking of getting the word out, uh, share the show. Post it on your social media, send an episode to a friend over text, tell a family member about it over dinner. I know for me, I'm always more likely to check out a book or a movie or a podcast if someone I know and trust recommends it. So that word of mouth advertising would be absolutely incredible, and I'd love to have your support in that way. All right, let's dig in, shall we? Before we take our overview of the servant songs, it's important for us to establish how this servant figure is linked to the Davidic Messiah, which is asserted and affirmed to be Jesus by us as Christians. Now, this is true of just about everything in the Bible, but in order to understand the scope of what we're talking about, we have to go back to the book of Genesis. Recall to mind the Tower of Babel and how God scattered the nations and confused the languages of the people because of their rebellion in building the tower. Immediately after that happened, immediately after the Babel event, in Genesis 12, we read about how God calls out Abraham from among the pagans. God reveals himself to Abraham and promises to make his family into a great nation that would mediate blessings and divine favor to the rest of the world. Of course, many of you will be familiar with where the story goes from here, but Abraham's family ends up being slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. Eventually, God delivers them out of bondage through his servant Moses. And at Mount Sinai, the Israelites and Yahweh enter into a covenant together. There at the foot of the mountain, Abraham's descendants promise to obey the terms of their covenant with Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, in order for them to be his faithful representatives to the other nations. However, things go awfully awry, and they do so rather quickly. As the biblical story unfolds, we watch Abraham's family, the people of God, who are supposed to be the the covenant people, the mediators of the divine blessings to the wicked pagan nations, they fail. we watch them fail in their task because of their own sinful ways. Eventually, God raised up for the Israelites a royal leader, King David, a king who would intercede for God's people and keep the covenant and be faithful on their behalf. But once again, we see just how pervasive the problem of sin is in the life of David as he faces his own failures, his adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, are the most obvious examples. But thankfully, God being rich in mercy was not done working. He promised that the ideal 
the ultimate, the uh, the ne plus ultra leader of Israel would come later from David's line. We talked about this a little bit in the episode on temple theology and why we gather together as Christians. But in 2 Samuel 7, and again in 1 Chronicles 17, God promises to David to establish a house for him. And in turn, one of David's own descendants, one of his offspring, would build a house for God. And the throne of this descendant of David would be established forever. This was partially fulfilled by Solomon, of course, David's son and his immediate heir. But after Solomon strayed from God's path later in his life and died, we realize that he ultimately did not fit the bill. In fact, none of the descendants of David fit the bill. So when we get to the book of Isaiah, when we approach it from this perspective, the perspective of the whole biblical narrative, we open it anticipating the promised king from David's line. And Isaiah begins his prophetic ministry in chapter 1 of his book by calling out the rulers in Jerusalem, those from the line of David who were wicked, who had become thieves and murderers. He condemns the citizens of Jerusalem for participating in injustice and neglecting what the law required of them. This injustice is mainly expressed in not just Isaiah, but the rest of the prophetic literature as a blatant disregard for orphans and widows and the poor in Israelite society, as well as bribery and showing partiality towards certain groups of people in legal matters, um, special interest groups, to use the modern parlance. These things are considered a direct result of them forsaking their relationship with Yahweh in favor of pagan gods, And because they've done this, because they've forsaken the god of their ancestors in order to worship the pagan gods, the prophet reveals that judgment is coming. I love the ending of the first chapter of Isaiah out of the King James Version. It's both beautifully poetic, but also so foreboding. It's intensely foreboding. It's really quite brilliant. I'm going to read it just so you can get the flavor of not only where the spiritual condition of God's people is at during this time, but also where it's going. So here's God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. It's chapter 1, starting in verse 21. How is the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it. But now murderers. Thy silver is become dross, thy wine mixed with water. Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loveth gifts and followeth after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the widow come unto them. Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. And I will turn my hand upon thee, and purely purge away thy dross, and take away all thy tin. And I will restore thy judges as at the first, and thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment, and her converts with righteousness. And the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together, and they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. 
For they shall be ashamed of the oaks which ye have desired, and ye shall be confounded for the gardens that ye have chosen. For ye shall be as an oak whose leaf fadeth, and as a garden that hath no water. And the strong shall be as tow, and the maker of it as a spark, and they shall both burn together, and none shall quench them. Here we see a proclamation and a promise of divine justice upon Israel. Throughout Scripture, Israel is symbolized as a tree, and the prophet is saying that God is taking the holy tree to a stump, right? They shall be as an oak whose leaf fadeth, right? The holy tree is being purged, and only a repentant remnant will be redeemed. But that's not something to gloss over, because a remnant will indeed be redeemed. Jerusalem will once more be called a faithful city of righteousness, and hope for the future Davidic king is given here in Isaiah 1, as God says, I will restore thy judges and counselors as at the beginning. The Davidic line is going to go through the fire, and it's going to come out refined and pure. This leads into chapter 2 of Isaiah, which talks about how when God restores his people, when God restores Abraham's family and his descendants and the Davidic line, then all of the nations of the earth will be drawn to the kingdom of God. These themes basically constitute the whole of the book of Isaiah, Israel's sin, God's judgment, his divine justice, the restoration of Israel with a new king from David's line, and peace among all the nations of the earth after they are brought into the kingdom of God. These are all the themes of Isaiah. Now, the first candidate we see for this new Davidic king is our old friend Ahaz. Remember, we were first introduced to Ahaz in the episode on Exiles and Kings. If you remember, Ahaz is quite young when he ascends to the throne of David, and he's immediately put into contention with two other kings named Rezin and Pekah. And Ahaz feels like the only way forward for his kingdom is to throw in with a guy named Tiglath-Pileser III, right? He's the king of Assyria. Assyria is the the superpower in the world at this time. And Isaiah goes to confront Ahaz in chapter 7 and says basically to slow down, slow your roll, King Ahaz. Don't make any rash decisions. Just trust God instead. But Ahaz does the exact opposite and demonstrates that instead of having the qualities needed to save Israel from her enemies, He's just the next faithless king in a long line of disappointments. Thus, Isaiah begins to look forward in hope once again for the promised king from David's line who would faithfully lead Israel. So David wasn't the guy. Solomon wasn't the guy. Ahaz is not the guy. So we have to look forward. And as Isaiah meditates on the promised king, He taps into the prophetic anointing on his life, and he pens some of the most beautiful and well-known words in all of Scripture recorded in chapter 9. You know this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah will develop this expectation in chapter 11, where he describes this coming king as the shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father, of course, and no matter how bad things get for God's people with the Assyrian threat and the Babylonian exile, the promise of God is that a new king will come forth. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon this king, the scripture says, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will be a righteous judge, and his rule, uh, his kingdom will be a banner. It will be a rallying point for every nation. And we actually do have another candidate for this king as the book of Isaiah continues to unfold. Right, Chapters 36 through 39 tell the story of a descendant of David named Hezekiah. He's another king on David's throne, and he's genuinely a godly ruler. He's the king when the Assyrian war machine starts beating their drums outside the gates of Jerusalem. And unlike Ahaz, who buckles under the pressure, Hezekiah demonstrates radical faith. Radical faith when he goes to the temple and hits his knees and prays and cries out to Yahweh for deliverance. And the Lord answers Hezekiah. God sends a plague into the Assyrian camp overnight. And the next morning, Hezekiah looks out and sees the bodies with the rest of the army nowhere to be seen because the Assyrian king has retreated. And if you're living in Jerusalem at this time, put yourself in, in their shoes. You're living in Jerusalem, and you might be thinking, this Hezekiah fellow is our guy. He's our guy. He could be the Prince of Peace. He's the Davidic king who will lead the nation faithfully before God. However, that pesky sin problem once again gums up the works. Assyria's main geopolitical rival at this time was the empire of Babylon, and the Babylonians were going around forming secret alliances in order to topple the Assyrian regime. Well, one day, a Babylonian emissary arrives in Jerusalem, and for the first time, we see uh, what could be a chink in Hezekiah's proverbial armor. Hezekiah is so flattered by the Babylonians, to the point of pride, and he ends up showing the emissaries the temple treasures, the royal treasury, the armory, everything. Hezekiah got through his first test by faith and prayer, but now with his ego stroked and with the thought of having the Babylonian war machine at his back, um, that, that's too enticing, Hezekiah opts for the seemingly expedient political option rather than keeping his trust in God. So in Isaiah 39, the prophet goes to confront the king for making this alliance that was not necessary. God did not want Hezekiah to make this alliance with Babylon, but he did anyway. 
and Isaiah is confronting him. Again, this is chapter 39. And he tells the king that there will be dire consequences for this failure, for this act of faithlessness. Isaiah says that within a few generations, the Babylonians that Hezekiah was so eager to ally himself with would become the instrument of judgment in God's hands towards the Israelites for their sin. This, of course, comes to pass when Nebuchadnezzar's army marches on Jerusalem, sacks the city, destroys the temple, and carries off Hezekiah's descendants into exile in Babylon. And that is the last time a Davidic king is mentioned in Isaiah. Ahaz, clearly not the guy, a failure from the get-go. Hezekiah, he looked promising at first, but in the end, it all came crashing down. The promise of a righteous, faithful, divine king from the line of David remains unfulfilled from Isaiah's perspective. Now, the exile happens before any of David's descendants could live up to the call. However, there is still reason for hope. There's reason for hope because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah reconstitutes the promises regarding a future Davidic king in the the figure of the servant of the Lord that emerges in his servant songs. We immediately hear echoes of these uh, Davidic promises in the first of these songs, Isaiah 42, which depicts the Lord's servant as a strong champion of justice who brings it forth on the earth. I'll be reading out of the ESV now. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Here we see the Lord's servant described in the exact same way earlier passages of Isaiah describe the coming Davidic king, endowed with the Spirit of the Lord, executing divine justice on the earth. The coastlands, it says, Wait for God's Torah, for his law. The mission of the servant is to be a light to the nations. He will open the eyes of the blind, it says. He will release the prisoners who sit in darkness. And he will do this in contrast to the idols of the pagan nations that are powerless to help the people who worship them. The servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh, will spring forth out of Israel to establish a kingdom 
of righteousness and justice, not only for the covenant family of Abraham, but for every nation. This is the exact same way Isaiah 1 and 2 talks about the promised Davidic king. So this is the first depiction of Isaiah's servant of the Lord, right? The first piece of the puzzle, if you will. The next piece comes from Isaiah 49. This passage, the second of the songs, shares some very similar ideas with the first one. I think that'll be evident to you as I read it. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So once again, um, overlapping with the first servant song, the coastlands are mentioned here, giving us the idea that the work of the Lord's servant will constitute the hope of the whole world, even to the ends of the earth. We also get the picture of the servant as a divine warrior and a weapon in the hands of Yahweh, right? His mouth is like a sharp sword. Imagery, which is later applied to Jesus by the apostle John in Revelation. The servant is also spoken of as a polished arrow in the Lord's quiver. Another interesting point uh, is how in verse 3, the servant corresponds to the nation of Israel. However, in verse 5, the servant is differentiated from the tribes of Jacob and from the nation of Israel. The mission of the servant is to restore the house of Jacob back into a right relationship with God, but not only that, that is too light a thing, too easy, the scripture says, for the servant of the Lord. Someone as great and glorious as the servant will go beyond Israel and be a light to every nation. He will bring the hope of Yahweh's salvation to every nation. Now, moving along to the third servant song in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 50, we see highlighted for us the faithfulness of the servant to Yahweh. Quote, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear, to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. 
but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So in addition to the faithfulness of the servant being highlighted here, we also get a taste of what the faithfulness will get him. And we kind of got a hint of it in the previous song from Isaiah uh, 49. But we get it more pronounced here that the servant will be despised. We start to get an inkling of the, the suffering that the servant of the Lord will have to face. Yet in the midst of the suffering, the Lord will sustain him. The Lord will sustain his servant and help him. And because the Lord is with him, the servant does not back down from his calling. The servant does not back down from his adversaries. He's unafraid of them. And we can see this in the life of Christ. He does not shy away from the persecution and the suffering that awaits him in Jerusalem, but he sets his face toward the city like a flint, and he embraces his divine mission. And this brings us to the fourth servant song, and perhaps the most well-known of them, Isaiah 53. This chapter is the final piece of the puzzle that makes up the image of the Isaianic servant of the Lord. Recall the famous words of this chapter. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord laid on him. The Lord has laid on the servant, the iniquity of us all. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, Philip, the apostle Philip, is traveling down a road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he meets an Ethiopian eunuch who is reading Isaiah the prophet. And Philip asks the eunuch if he understands what he is reading. And the eunuch replies, how can I understand unless someone guides me. So Philip sits with him a while, and it turns out the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, and he asks Philip, about whom is the prophet speaking? Is, this, is the prophet speaking about himself or someone else? And the Bible says that Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with that scripture, he told the eunuch the good news about Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, we see the painful imagery of the perfect Lamb of God willingly suffering for the sheep who have gone astray. But thank God we know that's not how the story ends. Through this suffering, Christ wins the victory over death, and he achieves the redemption of humankind. Listen to how Isaiah rounds out chapter 53, the last of his servant songs. Quote, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, 
make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. As we finish this episode, I want to talk about the implications of this last verse from Isaiah 53. Because at first glance, up close, the suffering servant looks so radically different from the victorious warrior king from the line of David. But you can't help but but notice that Isaiah seems to be conceptually fusing the two of them together into one messianic figure. And when we bring probably the most famous messianic prophecy outside of Isaiah, the enthronement psalm of Psalm 2, when we bring that into the mix, I think it becomes very clear that the Isianic servant and the Davidic king are one and the same. Look at the last line of Isaiah 53 again. I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. I think this verse often gets overlooked in sermons and in personal meditations on Isaiah 53, partly because it seems like weak praise. The servant whom the New Testament authors assert and confirm to be Jesus Christ does not merely deserve a portion like Jesus gets a prize for his effort along with other figures who are considered strong. No, the servant of the Lord deserves the whole kit and caboodle. And what's interesting is that there are scholars who would translate this in a different way. In fact, um, ancient scholars translated this in a different way. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible dating all the way back to the 3rd century BC, a few hundred years before Jesus even walked the earth, yeah, they translated this a little differently. The Septuagint was widely used during the time of Christ. In fact, many of the Apostle Paul's Old Testament quotations in his epistles, they come from the Septuagint. This phrase, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. In the Greek Old Testament, in the Septuagint, it says this, Diatuto atos kleronomisi palos kaiton iskaron meri skula. Now, my Koine Greek is not the best. So if you're a biblical language ultra nerd, um, I'm sorry. I hope you can forgive me because I know the pronunciation was not, not the best. But if you bring that Greek translation back into English, the verse will read this way. Because of this, he will inherit the many and to the mighty he will apportion the spoils. That's a significant shift. Because of his obedience to suffer on their behalf, God's servant is given the multitudes. He's given the many. He's given all the nations. We find this same imagery in Psalm 2, the the famous messianic enthronement psalm. There we read from the pen of David, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. 
How stunning is this? If we read Isaiah 53, 12 as being about the servant of the Lord being given the multitudes, the nations being made his heritage, and the ends of the earth his possession, the two messianic visions, the suffering servant and the victorious warrior king, they get fused into one. It's very compelling. And from there, the pattern becomes clear. First, the servant must suffer to redeem his people, and through his suffering, he emerges as the victorious Davidic king. And the many who are given to him as his possession are the very people whose sins his suffering atoned for. I mean, how cool is that? How cool is that? When you think about it this way, it gives a whole new layer of depth to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, right? We are not our own, but we are bought at a price. We are doulos Christo, slaves of Christ. That phrase makes a lot of people uncomfortable because when we hear slaves, we automatically think of it in the horrific American slavery context of the 18th and 19th centuries. But all it really means to be a slave of Christ is that the blood of Jesus has not only paid for our sins, but it has purchased our whole lives. And if we have confessed him as Lord, and if we've received the atoning work of Christ on the cross by faith, then we are part of the multitudes who have been given to him. So as we finish this episode, let me challenge you to think beyond yourself as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Because even though it's certainly true that Jesus died for you personally, as we like to say in Western evangelical churches, the Bible thinks in much broader terms. When Jesus died on the cross and when he rose again, he didn't just purchase me and you. He purchased an entire kingdom with the blood that he spilled. It was too light of a thing for the servant of the Lord to only restore one nation to right relationship with God. But the servant of the Lord restores the whole earth to right relationship with God. The blood he spilled purchased an entire kingdom where justice flows, where blessings are mediated, where love reigns, a kingdom in which you and I are a part. So lastly, as we end, let me give you one more scripture to meditate on for this Easter season, but not just for the Easter season, because this is a good thing to meditate on every single day of our lives as Christians. In Revelation chapter 5, the Apostle John is writing and he picks up on the lamb imagery from Isaiah 53. John writes, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So David failed. Solomon failed. Ahaz failed. Hezekiah failed. But Christ overcame. Only Jesus, the Son of God, the servant of the Lord, and the promised Davidic king, could break the seals of the scroll and accomplish the will of the Father, bringing the kingdom of God to the earth. Happy Easter. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be blessed.